Welcome to Stop Telling and Start Listening with David Cook. If you're frustrated with the way we are speaking or not speaking to each other, if you find yourself easily at odds in your conversations with people, this may be just the show for you. Listen in as David and his guests will help you elevate your communication skills and navigate the tensions present in many conversations today. Now, here is David Cook. Hey, good morning, good afternoon. It depends on where you are time zone-wise, but this is David Cook, and you are listening to Stop Telling and Start Listening. Um, happy Monday. Um, happy day after Mother's Day. I hope all the moms that are listening to the show um, felt uh, felt special, felt loved, felt appreciated. Um, it's always a great day to uh, have. I always get a kick out of watching and seeing all the different pictures and stuff like that. And um, obviously, too, there are moms who have... Uh, um, loved ones that have aren't able to join them anymore because we've lost them where um, they were in a different part of the country or the world. Um, same to you. Happy Mother's Day. And thank you for all that you've done and all that you are uh, going through as you reflect on being a mom. Um, I have a guest today that uh, probably has a story along those lines. Um, my guest today is Pam Lanhart. Pam and I have known each other for a long time. If I had to guess, I would say it's at least eight years um, and Pam and I met when we were, when she was here in Arizona, visiting her son, Jake, who was in a uh, recovery center, um, outside of, uh, Phoenix. And, um, we've since talked a lot because Pam and I, um, have been united as moms and dads, um, uh, with children with substance use disorder. Um, a common term for everybody else is um, addicted to drugs, but we try to tone that down a little bit um, to bring education and awareness to actually what's going on as opposed to labeling it addiction, which has a terminology that um, is less understood. But substance use disorder reflects the disease and the issue that we're dealing with. And so, Pam, thank you so much for being on the show. I always enjoy talking to you, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on, Dave. And Dave's right, we've been friends for what seems like a really long time. We have really aligned philosophies. And uh, I remember when I first met you, Dave, we were having coffee in the Phoenix area and immediately realized that we could do some partnering together. And we invited you years ago to record for our learning platform at the time. And it was all on amazing listening skills and just how we can put love into practice. And so I've always just really admired your work. So thanks for having me. Well, thank you. Appreciate the compliment. Um, you know, it's, it's, it is um, interesting because, you know, I was just thinking as I was doing my intro, I didn't even think about it when I was writing up the intro, but um you know, Pam and I met, um, like I said, when when her son Jake was um, in in a in a treatment program uh, seeking his recovery, and um, at the time, well, we talked a lot, and Pam was in the process of starting to look at um, what she could do to help moms and dads who were in the situation that they were in: education, encouragement, awareness, all those things, and. Um, you know, ironically, um, in some respects, ironically, her Thrive Family Addiction Program has just taken off. And I love it for all that it stands for because it is healthy. And we'll talk about that more. But the other, the the 
The other side of the coin is, um, sadly, uh, Jake passed away about 18 months ago. And so, you know, here you are, mom going through Mother's Day uh, minus Jake. And so kind of wanted to take a moment and just ask you how that feels when that when you that mom's day shows up. I think it's a double-edged sword. There's always two sides to the coin. And when you have great love, there's always great pain when you lose someone you love. And I have three other kids and 10 grandchildren. So absolutely so much to celebrate. So many good things in my life. And at the same time, there's always a deep ache in your heart for the person that you're missing, whether it's your own mom or whether it is a child that you've lost. Um, There's words to define when you lose a parent or when you lose a spouse, but there's no real word to define when you lose a child. And so there's just this awareness at most moments in the day that you know, you're, there's a piece of your soul and spirit that's missing. Um, and I'm grateful too. And that's one thing, Dave, that I talk a lot about is how because of the way that we walked through our journey with him, the way that he was honored. Recording in progress. The way that we worked our own recovery. Um You know, we just feel like we don't have a lot of regrets, Mm -hmm. even though it would seem like we might. um, I think that we feel very fortunate. Yeah. Well, you know, I think um, it's interesting because I think that one of the things that we've, you know, and we'll dive into this a little bit deeper, but as we're leaning into this is that. Um, one of the conversations I had a long time ago, uh, I, don't, I was interviewed on a radio station, and um, one of the people was that was interviewing me. I was telling him about my how I view the you know, situation with my son, and you know that my goal is to meet him where he is for who he is. I'm going to love him no matter what. Do I love Do I love the the addiction, if I will? Do I love the journey that he's on? Do you know that kind of stuff? No, I don't. But I love my son. And the most important gift that I can give to my son is to him experience my love no matter where he is, even if he's in the deepest and darkest place of his life, knowing that his dad loves him and is there for him is the best I can do at that time. And I'm good with that. And the one woman said, so, you know, on the radio show, she said, well, you know, so if he came to your house, high, would you let him in? I said, truthfully, yeah, I, the answer is yes. And I have, and I will. And she goes, oh, my gosh, you know, how can you do that? And I said, here's the deal is that, God forbid, (laughs) my son overdoses. God forbid my son dies. I don't want my son. The last thing my son experiencing is me pissed off at him. Mm -hmm. What I want is I want my son to know if he dies. And that unfortunate is that his whatever it is, his last experience with his dad was one where he knew his dad loved him. Mm, And we have a similar experience and ideology in that as well. And that was always the question I asked myself wasn't so much about him getting better, although we definitely wanted him to get better, but it was really about how we would treat him and how we would honor him in his life. And early on, I remember asking myself, like, if he got well, would he want to have a relationship with me? Would I be healthy? 
<laughs> would I be um, working my own recovery program? Would I have healed my own trauma in my life? Would I have gained the tools and the skills and and done the the internal work in my way of being towards him? You know, I think that we can love, but love is about the way of being that we evoke when we're with someone, empathy, compassion, kindness, all of those things that are so important when someone already feels heaped with shame and heaped with this idea that they are less than or that they are not worthy. And then the second question was, and if he got well, would he want to have a relationship with the God that I believed in, you know, and higher power, whatever that looked like for him, I wanted to feel like we were representing our beliefs, you know, were we talking the talk or were we actually walking the walk? And I wanted him to respect the walk that we had. And the fact that the way we treated people was intrinsic to our fundamental values. And then the third question was, and if he didn't make it out of this, you know, would he know? What what if? What if this was the last text I sent him? What if this was the last message he got? What if this was the last interaction that we ever had? And sadly, I had to live that out. And thankfully, I lived that out in a way that was very intentional. He had a one-day return to you, so it was a very very short um, but intense uh, return to use that ended his life. And in that, I have the ability to go back and look at his text messages and look at our interactions and how I guided his girlfriend, Maddie, at the time. And I have absolutely no regret in that. I can look back at that and just feel very, I don't even want to use the word proud because that doesn't feel like the right word there, but just, you know, everything we did aligned with our philosophies. And it was very intentional, even in that one day. And so we're, we're walking through the pain and the grief and the loss, but it's not compounded by the fact that um, we treated him poorly, you know, and I, I was just at a funeral, Dave, on Monday. And it was so interesting because it was a friend of Jake's who had died of an overdose um, in a very similar manner. His was even more acute. It was a one-time use. He thought he was using uh, cocaine. And his brother got up and spoke at the funeral and said, the last letter I sent to my brother was over six months ago. And it was not a very kind letter. We disagreed with a lot of our ideology and philosophy, and I needed to be right, and I need him to, he needed him to know that I was right about that, and that was the last time we talked, and his plea was to make every moment count and to not burn bridges. I, I remember sitting in front of an advisor early on and asking me, you know, are you going to be right for the sake of justice? Or are you going to love for the sake of relationship? Because love never fails. And sometimes we get so intent on being right that we forget that in that process, we dehumanize the other person. 
And if we really want to love well, we need to consider the possibility that there might be two perspectives in the situation and that it's less about us being right, but more about how we value the person in front of us, honor them, and how we treat them in the process. So I learned that. My husband learned that. We practiced that in our life. And we're so grateful that we did, which is really what brings us, you know, to this conversation today. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, it's just, it just resounds so crisp, crisply with me with you know, all that. You know, you're like, um, this is like the 19th episode. And I don't think that we've had one episode where we didn't have that little nugget about um, in different words, but the same, the same message is, is that, when you're dealing with people, there's, you know, you get to that place where there's tension. And when you have tension, you know, obviously, because we have expectations and we have beliefs and we have rules and we have all those things. But um, there's a point in time where um, if you want to make somebody wrong, you can do that. But at what cost is, you know, are you doing that as opposed to, um, you know, accepting the fact that you're in disagreement, you know, or there's tension and finding a way to still maintain the connection, build the relationship, find common ground, whatever it is. And I think that just that that's such a such a important differentiator. Cause I, you know, I, I know what it's like, you know, obviously as a parent, I know what it's like to struggle with substance um use disorder. I know what it's like to have a child that's in that situation. But when you really look at, for me, a lot of this stuff is a lot of what I learned about, you know, dealing with what I was dealing with, with my son Brandon. Is, is that when I really look back on it, it's like, you know, all I'm really doing is is getting a lesson, an intense lesson in how to be the parent my child needs me to be. Because hmm. that's all this really is. This is just about parenting. You can put whatever issue you want in front of that. Obviously, something like what Jake and Brandon are going through can be a life or death situation. Obviously, we go to funerals. We get notes from people that, you know, somebody died from an overdose. You lost a son. So it is life and death. It's not things like homework or a job or, um, you know, values and stuff like that. But the truth of the matter is, is that we're, it, it still is parenting. It's how do you love your kids in the situation that they're in and help them and, and help uh, in loving them, teach them, encourage them. You can scold them, but you're also molding them. And it's not about me being right as a parent. It's more about me being the parent that you need me to be so that you can find your way. I love that. And I, I remember just yesterday posted, you know, uh, I wasn't a perfect parent by any stretch. I was the perfect parent for my kids. But in that process of recognizing that I had a lot to learn about parenting, I was always looking for ways to do it better to, like you said, understand my children. And there are four kids that are all very different. They need very different things from me. And so it was an exercise. And even now they're all adults. My oldest daughter is, uh, our oldest daughter is 38. And then we've got a 27 year old and then Jake would be, I'm getting close to being 26. And then our youngest is 23. Um, So uh, they're all- the camera up. I do. They're all different now. You know, they all have different personalities. They all have different um, needs. 
And my oldest daughter raises 10 children. Her needs are way different than my son who doesn't have any kids, you know. You and have a daughter with 10 children? I We do. We have a daughter with 10 children. So her needs are going to be way different than, you know, my um, younger son. And then my, my youngest daughter. Now, this is something really interesting too, Dave, is that um, throughout this process, You know, I recognize that my youngest daughter had a lot of trauma. She had a lot of difficulties. She developed some serious anxiety as a result of, you know, the trauma that was in our home with Jake. And so she's been a little stuck. You know, we have this idea in our society of what this looks like to parent our kids and then launch them. And it looks a little bit like we're going to, check all the parenting boxes when they're young. So we're going to make sure that they're in pro-social activities, bring them to church, um, you know, get them in sports, have dinner together five times a week, all of those different things. Never once is deal with substance use on that list, (laughs) but you try your best to raise these kids while they're in your home. And then it's now they're going to go to college. They're going to graduate from college. They're going to find the love of their life and get a job about the same time. And then a couple of years later, they're going to get married, have their, you know, 2.2 children and they're off and running. But what we learned in this whole situation with parenting Jake was that life doesn't always uh, go as predicted. And our daughter um, lived in our home when Jake went through these multiple treatments and struggled in school and struggled with anxiety and um, depression and uh, just some responses to her own, to the trauma. And as a result, she's still living in our home. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and we're reparenting her. I call it We're we have sort of created this very, safe, nurturing environment for her to get well from everything that happened in the past. So it didn't look like what society would tell us, but it looked like exactly what she needed. And what she needed was to just be safe for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, um, this was years ago, a good friend from grad school whose son um, he, you know, dealt with some issues. Um, I think his drug of choice was cocaine, but, um, you know, he was on the path to recovery, he dropped out of school for a while, did the hard work, found his way to a sustained recovery. In fact, now he's been, you know, um, he's been in a sustained recovery uh, situation in his life for, I don't know, six years, but there was a time where, you know, cause he was graduating college late and some other things. And he says, yeah, how do you sit with these parents who are talking about all these wonderful things that their kids are doing? And I said, you just tell, you, you tell the story about your telling them the truth. They don't need to know the whole truth, but you can do whatever you want. But, you know, life doesn't go according to the plan. <laughs> and we as parents, like you said, it's really interesting because we have this little scorecard, right? The scorecard is they grow up healthy they become really good students or really good athletes. They find a nice, um, they go to a nice college, they get a nice degree, they find a nice boy or girl, they get married, they crank out some kids, life goes on. And, you know, let's get real for a minute. 
I mean, let's get real. First of all, anybody who has that as a checklist, it's, you know, that's a wish list and it's nice. You can say, this is my, this is, this is, you know, if everything goes great, this is the best I could hope for. But the truth of the matter is, is that parenting isn't about, isn't about creating a plan. Parenting is about being in the moment of who I am as it relates to my child. And, 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 and it isn't about how you look as a parent, which is the thing that just slays me about parents is because we're all so terrified of looking like being bad parents. And the yardstick that we use for looking like being bad parents is my kid's on drugs, my kid's in jail, my kid's failing school, my kid's a lousy athlete, my kid has a lousy personality. None of those things really are a reflection on your parenting. They can be, but it has nothing to do with you. Is your child is going through something that has them in that place. Now, great parenting is how do you navigate that space with them from a place of love? That's great parenting. And nobody's going to check that box for you. So the idea of checking a box is makes is means I'm focused on who I am as a parent, which means my eyes are faced on the mirror and not on my kid. Mm. I, lo- I love that. And, you know, I think it's what you said is now how when the story isn't what we want it to be, do we navigate that and looking at what do our children need in that moment? And that goes back to the great work that you're doing, which is, how do we listen to them? How do we pivot so that we can support them? How do we empower them to self-determine? I heard a really, really great um, definition recently of agency, right? Which says that agency is our ability to self-regulate and then to be able to determine our values so that we can make a decision with intention and then self-reflect. And honestly, had I known that, had someone given me just that one little nugget, if there was a checkbox to have checked, that would have been it. How would my child feel so safe with us and in our environment that they learned how to do that? Because that to me is really the foundation of how I can move forward in my life in good relationship with others, achieving the goals and dreams that I have, um, not, you know, bulldozing or making people mad around me. You know, how can I feel confident and empowered? And it really is like self-regulation, values-driven decision-making, do my behaviors match my values? That's what intention is, right? where I go, okay, this is my value. And this is key, Dave, to our story, which was in early uh, substance use when Jake was young and in our home, our values said, I want to be kind. I want to be compassionate. I want to be a loving parent. I want to, uh, you know, be gentle and patient. And I was showing up in a completely different way with my son because I was activated, right? And of Mm -hmm. course, we're going to be activated when things don't go the way we want them to go. You know, when we find out that our loved one is experiencing these problems, you know, we're going to be dysregulated. We're going to react rather than respond. And so, you know, it's had I known then you know, that, and, and all I could do was describe it in that my behaviors 
were not matching my heart at the time. Mm -hmm. My heart said, I want to be these things. My behavior said that I was anything but those things. And I was out of alignment. And that felt really hard for me. That was the precipice for change in my life. So that then, as you said, we can go back and we can be what our kids need for us, you know, so that I can empower them to live their best life, you know, Mm -hmm. and and then the other piece of that, what, what bubbled up for me when you were saying that is, you know, there's always a reason why there's, you know, the, the substances aren't the problem. The substances are the symptom or the manifested behaviors that are the solution to the problem. And so when we have kids that don't follow that perfect plan, Oftentimes, we just want to sort of manage the extrinsic behaviors, right? Make it stop. I'm going to make it stop by yelling or by trying to control or by manipulating or like you said, by making it look good on the outside. And that might feel for a moment somewhat okay. But the truth is, all of those behaviors are a result of something really deeply internal that's going on in our in our person you know there's an intrinsic problem there that problem might be I don't fit in or I feel like I have a lot of anxiety I have a lot of pressure to get good grades you know so often our checkbox is what makes them you know want to not follow that plan Um, so I think that we when we can take a step back and we can understand, right? Mm -hmm. So the way I self-regulate is by being more understanding and empathetic and compassionate. And then Mm -hmm. getting back to, and maybe we can talk about this a little after the break, all the things that you and I both know are those sort of tools and skills with listening actively so that we can bring out that why for them, right? Mm -hmm. That's really it. Yeah, that's it. Because, you know, um, yeah, you're right. We are going to break. And when we come back from break, that's what we'll continue to talk about. But I think that's really the issue is we see the behavior and we want to stop the behavior, but we can't stop the behavior if we don't understand the why behind the behavior. So when we come back from break, let's dive into that and talk a little bit about the skills, the the, the tools that you use in your loving well model to uh, to go get into that stuff. And so we'll be back in a, in a couple of minutes. Stay tuned. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. We are living in a time where a relentless commitment to opinions and beliefs are dividing communities and fracturing crucial relationships. Making ourselves right and those who disagree with us wrong leaves little room for engaging in a constructive learning dialogue there is little opportunity to change minds, find common ground, or solve complex problems. Those who are not being heard or understood become angry, hurt, lost, isolated, alone, and more. While mental health-related issues are on the rise, too few know how to safely share their struggles, and far too many don't know how to care about those that do. While it is increasingly frustrating to experience an increase in this communication divide, there is hope, and according to David Cook, there is an answer. 
The answer lies in how we adjust our communication style and shift our listening behaviors. In his radio show, Stop Telling and Start Listening, host David Cook introduces his audiences to the power found in creating a safe place for sharing life perspectives and experiences without judgment, criticism, correction, or shame. There are tremendous opportunities in learning to see the world from the eyes of another. Join David on Mondays at 11 Pacific. Discover how shifting your listening behaviors will close the divide that exists between you and others in your community. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You're listening to Stop Telling and Start Listening. Have a question for David or his guests? Join us on the show at 888-346-9141. That's 888-346-9141. Or you can email Dave at dave at thecookgroupllc.com. Now, back to the show with David. And we're back. Uh, this is David Cook. I'm the host of Stop Telling, Start Listening. And my guest today is Pam Lanhart. Pam and I, like I said, if you missed the beginning, we've known each other forever. We just had a great conversation, great leading conversation. They go so fast, 30 minutes, boom, we're done. But um, on this backside, um, I wanted to talk a little bit more because, you know, one of the things that we talked about leading in was focusing on being the parent that our children need us to be. And and for those who are saying, yeah, it's another parenting conversation, I was thinking, um, this is also leadership. You know, when you have somebody in your organization, in your family, I don't care where you plug that in, but when you have somebody that's struggling with whatever they're struggling with, um, being the leader that you need to be is being able to create a space for them to be able to be safe and tell you what's going on so that you understand the why behind the behavior. We see behavior that's disruptive. Somebody's late, their work is sloppy, their attitude is lousy. I don't care, however you want to plug it in. A great leader, a great parent, a great teacher, a great coach steps back and says, hmm, there's something going on here. I need to die and I need to figure out what it is. Not I need to stop the behavior. And I think that's what you were talking about, right, Pam, is, you know, how do we find out what's going on? What's the why behind what we're seeing? Yeah. And you know what? It's interesting because as we were getting ready for break, I thought the same thing. I like these practices, if you want to call them skills or tools, I like to call them practices, apply to anyone. And I use them just as much with my husband, with my other children. I use them all the time out there when I'm uh, partnering with organizations now and with staff, because now we have staff where they're fundamental for relationship. And You know, when I think about what my life is about, it's all about relationship. And I know in the work setting, sometimes you're like, I don't need to have a relationship with them. But honestly, don't we really want to? I mean, I want to be known for being a relational person because at the end of the day, when I connect deeply with people, they want to know what I know. They want to experience what I'm experiencing. And that's, I think, why our organization has grown and become so successful is not just because we have this great program for parents. It's because all of our 
organizational leaders do the same thing, which is connect. Like when I can connect with the people who need our support, our services, with those people who find us, um, I buy into the fact that this works because I know how it makes me feel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, when I feel valued and seen and heard and um, cared for, right? And uh, I feel like someone's walking with me. There's an interesting story in this book called The Anatomy of Peace. And it was one of the very first books I read. Um, at the same time, I read Brene Brown's Braving the Wilderness. And it's about, um, it's a leadership book by the Arbinger Institute. Um, they do a lot of national leadership trainings. They were kind of in before Brene Brown's stuff was in. Very similar work. And in this story, um, there was uh Uh, The parents were in a parent workshop, but in the meantime, one of the girls who was supposed to go into a treatment program took off without her shoes on. And so she was running without her shoes. And the dad was, as you can imagine, super dysregulated. And he was like, what are you going to do? You know, you need to stop her. And the leader said, no, don't worry about it. We've got it. And Lou said, well, what's your plan? And he said, my therapists have taken their shoes off and they're running alongside of her. And isn't that really what we want to do in life? Mm -hmm. That story touched me so deeply. Like, I don't want to do for people. I don't want to control people. I want to take off my shoes and Mm -hmm. run with them, whether it's my kids whether it's my husband, whether it's my staff, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it's my friends, whatever relationship I'm in, I want them to know that Mm -hmm. I'm taking off my shoes too. Yeah. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And that's, you know, that it's interesting because I was just, you know, there are a couple of things that you said in there, but that's really it is, um, Creating, creating that space where that, you know, you use the word, and this is, again, something that shows up in just about every interview. Seen, heard, you had under, under, you had you had cared for, but other people have understood. But seen, heard, understood. That they listen to me, they see me, they know, they experience me, and they're joining me. And then with that, with that join is the key. Because if I keep somebody off at a distance, I mean, see, I, I'm, I'm willing to help you to a point. But I, but I'm not, I'm not with you. But like you said, take off the shoes. I'm with you. That's the ultimate commitment. I am here with you. I'm walking alongside you. And um, my visual used to, you know, I used to show a visual. I think I did it when I, with your um, family RX talk. But one of the visuals that I used to say is um, the old country road where um, the cart had worn out a path on two sides, but in the middle there was grass. And for me, I said, that's that's kind of like me and my journey with my son is I'm never going to get in his lane because if I'm in his lane, I'm in his addiction slash recovery. I'm in his life. And so at that grass thing in the middle is reminding me that there's some I have to keep some distance. It's a healthy distance. So it's not it's not distance like a wall, but I can walk alongside my son. There's no matter what happens, he can look and he can see me there. He knows I'm not going to get in and try to take over his mess because that's not my job. 
It's not my responsibility, but it's my responsibility to walk alongside with him in his mess, take off my shoes, run with him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's powerful. And and again, back to you know anything, any kind of relationship, if you're in, you're in. And people know you're in. If you're being authentic and if you're being transparent and if you're being sincere and you're listening and you're concerned and you're loving and you're empathetic, what people say is, is that I know that Dave cares about me. I know that Dave wants the best for me. And I know Dave is going to be there to with me in this as I, as I, like you said, figure it out as I discover my path, because I can't give you the path. I'm not here to fix it. What I'm here is I'm here to talk with you so you can hear um, intuitively where you can go um, from here and you decide where you want to go from here. And I go, yep, let's go. I'm, I got my shoes off and I'm running. Yeah. And you know, one of the other words that we haven't brought up that I use a lot is, is being safe, right? Yes. What does it mean to be safe? And in my work, I often say healing happens in safe spaces. And so uh, my child isn't going to heal unless our home is safe. My work environment isn't going to be flourishing or growing if my environment isn't safe. So I had to learn how to be a safe person. I did not come from a family where, and that's a new word. That's a word that's sort of been polarized or popularized over the last maybe three years. Really, I think since COVID and George Floyd's death, we've talked about how do we create this safe environment for people. And it's getting rid of the power differential, right? So if I'm right, you're wrong, then we have a power differential. So when we can consider the possibility that there's compromise, then we get rid of that power differential. So that's the first way that we feel safe. And then just kind of going back to, you know, what does that look like practically speaking, Dave, is um, those, I think it's learned. I think we can learn Uh, Like I said, my parents were not safe. My environment wasn't safe. So when I exhibited reactive problematic behaviors, you know what it was? It was a safety grab. Mm -hmm. And so honestly, if we think of, first of all, our behaviors, like what are those safety grabs? What are those behaviors that I do when I don't feel safe? You know, maybe my self-esteem is taking a hit. Maybe my ideas are being criticized. Maybe I'm not getting my point across to whatever it is in a leadership setting. Um, So, you know, when I want to elevate myself, it's usually because I don't feel safe. Mm -hmm. It's usually because I think someone's, I'm, and often I'm creating the narrative, right? (laughs) Usually it's me sort of, you know, going ahead of myself with my thoughts that, you know, uh, really are rooted in my own sense of self-worth. And then when we look at other people's behaviors around us, anytime they're generally exhibiting those symptoms, those problematic behaviors, they're feeling unsafe for some reason. It may not be our fault, but we can work to create that environment. And we talked a little bit about, you know, how we can do that. I think the first thing is putting ourselves in their shoes, recognizing Mm -hmm right? That like right now they're 
doing a safety grab, right? Like their behaviors are not as healthy as what they could be recognizing that and going, okay, this, this is a safety grab. They're feeling unsafe right now. So what do we need in order to help them feel safe? Mm-hmm. You know, and it, yeah, uh, uh, it starts, I think we use, we call them our superpowers. Dave, they are rooted out of the therapeutic modality of motivational interviewing. And it's, yeah. you know, the validating, reflecting, affirming, asking those open-ended questions, and then gaining consent, which is, I'm not going to help you without your permission. Yep. Yep. Yeah. You know, it, it, um, you know, the safe thing's kind of funny. Um, you know, it's, and that's something that I probably, you know, for me, I've always been a guy that had no problems building a relationship. Everybody always saw me as a salesperson because I easily connected with people. I'm very personable. You know, my favorite description to me was gregarious because I think that's more, more to my, you know, a bit of a bit of charm and a bit of character. Um, I'll take that. I like that word. So um, maybe I'll have to get a tattoo that says gregarious on it someday. But anyway, um, you know, I always took it for granted that people trusted me. And people trusted me readily, I mean, quickly, you know, and what it was, was, is that I just wanted, I met somebody and I just thought, can we be friends? What do you, you know, who are you? What are you all about? What are you up to? What are you doing? I was curious, you know, we you used that word earlier. I was curious in, in my authentic curiosity, because all I wanted to do was learn, right? All I wanted to do is learn about you, learn about the person. And so people say, ah, this is great. And I think that that back to safe is, is that safe is that it's that genuine, it's that sincere. And I think that that's the challenge for a lot of people is how do I get somebody to to share their story? Well, that's manipulative. That's not authentic. If you're truly interested in their story, you don't need to get them to do it. What you need to do is you need to tell them the truth say, I'm dying to know. (laughs) I need to know. My curiosity is at its highest level. Give me, you know, feed me, you know, I'm dying to know. And then in that, in that thing, if you just allow it to be what it's be, they tell their story, they share their thing. He's like you said, and there's, and there's words, there's in a process and all that other stuff. And for me, a guy who likes to wing it, I'm probably not as much into the process or intuitively, I understand the process by accident. But the idea being is it starts out being authentically sincere about being safe. Because if you if you say I'm going to do it to get something, then it's not sincere. It's manipulative, mm-hmm. and I think that that's a challenge for a lot of people. Is because yeah, it's just not me. I understand it's not you, but if you're dying to know, <laughs> let your ego down. So okay, I'm in a place where I have no idea what's going on, but I need I need you to help me out here because I'm lost. I'm confused. I don't understand, and I know I need to. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think you're. Uh, a little bit unique and that that came very natural for you and perhaps it was because it was natural for your parents or maybe it was just your innate personality but actually actually it was survival well i learned this as i learned this from my shrink 25 years ago you talk about trauma um and it's not a the the quick short story is is my sister is two years younger than me was very very sick when at birth and so in the middle of the night, a lot of times, you know, or in the middle of the day, 
Um, all of a sudden, I'd be dropped off at somebody's house, and my parents had to rush to the hospital to, to attend to my sister. And so my therapist taught me, because I because I read people very well, and she said, you learned a survival skill. And the survival skill was, am I safe? Where am I safe? Who am I safe with? So I started to learn the process of reading at, you know, learning about people that are around me to know who I could trust. Mm-hmm. And then I turned that into, and then I realized that there's something special in connecting with people that I enjoyed. It's like, not only can I find people I can trust, but I can find people that I like. Right. I can find people that are cool. I can find people that have interesting stories. And so it shifted from a from a mechanism of self-protection to a mechanism of discovery. But at its core was basically a self-protective um, mechanism. Which, and again, like you turn that script around in a very amazing and wonderful way. I think for me, it was not that easy. I had to learn. I I believe that some of that was just this, I, I was so insecure growing up. I felt so unseen that that manifested in the need to be seen and that need to be seen, again, a safety grab, right? But it was that I wanted to tell more about who I was than listen to the other person naturally. So I had to develop those skills over time. And it was uh, definitely not easy. I mean, I'm a talker. I'm naturally engaging like you. I fill a room. Some people might say I'm a lot, you know, and that all of those things are really great when it comes to breaking the ice and building relationships. And at the same time, learning to feel safe enough in who I am as a human being and what value I have as a human being and how worthy I was as a human being. That was a process, like you said, a therapeutic process of healing that then allowed me to look outside of myself Mm. to the people that were in front of me and then gain that Um, skill of being curious, you know, I'm wondering, can you tell me more? Um, I'm curious, you know, those really great conversation starters that ask those questions, look for a tattoo on somebody and say, wow, that's an interesting tattoo. Tell me more about it. And they'll tell you the story of your life. But Mm -hmm. even with our kids, I know, um, and I'll give you a little example of this. And again, I have great examples because I sort of work with parents um, out of my own life as well. But my daughter goes to raves. Now, I've got a son who struggles with substance use and raves definitely uh, don't feel safe for me, right? We know that there's a lot of, you know, drinking and drugging that goes on in on raves. She's a great kid, has doesn't drink. You know, she's occasionally, but she's 23. So yeah. like she can do that, right? But I everything in me wanted to tell her to stop. I did not want her to go. And of course, I had created this narrative of how unhealthy they were and how bad they were. And so one day I'm in the car and I just said to her, you know, Nikki, I have created this story in my head. And the story in my head is that there's a lot of drinking and drugging and 
you know, bad things happen at raves. And she said, well, you know, that's why I don't like to talk about a mom, because I know that's probably what you think. And I said, well, it is. But I said, tell me about it from your perspective. I want to know what your story is. Yeah. See, what you've done is you've taken out you've taken you've what you've removed this is back to the you know the selfless listening thing we've talked about before is you've taken your filters your judgment your story you've tried your best to put it off on the side and say fill this in for me let me see what you see let me see what you experience let me see how you feel about it so that now i understand why you feel safe or why you feel comfortable why you're enjoying this at least now i know why and now that now you can sit there and say okay Here's my here's my fear-based story or my concern-based story. Here's her truth. And now I can put the two together and 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 refigure out, remap how I'm going to respond to this going forward. What a and, great gift. Exactly. And you know, it it took a lot of vulnerability, right? I think um uh we do have narratives that we create about situations, and so it takes us to take a step back and pause. And say, you know what, I have totally created a narrative around this, and I'm going to swallow my pride and set aside my ego to get what a different perspective is or to learn more about it. Because I know that that narrative that I have isn't going to bridge any gaps with the relationship that I have with my daughter. And if I want to be in relationship with her, I have to understand her and her perspective and whether it's you know again a child a spouse or in business you know we have narratives that we create all the time about people about the way they respond in certain situations what they must think you know i had i got a pretty strong email the other day from someone who works in this space threatening because she thought I was infringing on her copyright. Well, first of all, she had created her own narrative, you know, and it was obvious that she had created a narrative about that. And I could easily go off and create my own sort of a tit for tat. Right. And the hardest thing in the world for me is to have hard conversations. So I sent her an email back and I said, let's schedule a call. Right. There you go. And, and then I'm going to use those skills of validation and, you know, affirming her work and, you know, uh, maybe owning a little bit of that. I can see why that might look that way. Tell me more about why you're feeling that way right now and what that implication was in that email. So, you know, I think that, again, remembering that we need to shift our stories in order to build relationships. And we do that with, as you would say, active listening skills. You know, how can I be curious? How can I validate the other person's point of view? How can I ask them what their story is and how they feel about these things? And, you know, and then, of course, not giving advice unless it's, you know, there's permission and I call it gaining consent, which is, you know, can I give you some feedback on this situation? Or do you want to know what my, you know, what my perspective is on that? Or, you know, can I ask you, you know, what you might be doing in order to stay safe in that? 
Um, yeah. So those are tried and true skills. And I think they, for many people, unlike you, Dave, they don't come naturally and we can learn how to use them effectively. Right. So, okay, we have, um, it, I ran out of time, but I'm not going to, I did this to my guest last week. I didn't get her a chance to promote. So you have one minute to keep an eye on this one minute or I'm going to gong you. But um, how do we, uh, how does somebody reach out? Tell us a little bit about your organization and your website some way. What's the best way to contact you, Pam? Yeah. Thrive Family Recovery Resources is our website. Um, we do you know, one-on-one family coaching. We have support groups. We help families navigate resources in their area. We do educational workshops. We have a listserv where you can sign up for our emails and stay up to date on anything that we have going on. And then I'm on Facebook, Pam Jones Lionheart. I love to write. That's part of how I uh, have learned to um, process through a lot of really hard emotions. So you can just follow me on Facebook too. Perfect. Yeah. Um, if you guys, especially for the moms and dads, if you're looking for a resource to help you navigate the chaos of, um, you know, one of your children and, and substance use disorder, um, I love everything that Pam stands for. I love all the work that um, that she's put in. Also, the other thing that I just want to really say is, is that I've watched Pam learn and she's a great student of this journey. So if you're looking for a parent, um, if you're looking for a parent's organization that has strong opinions, Pam's not your person. If you're looking for somebody with very powerful perspectives and insights and knowledge, um, her organization is it. So Pam, thank you so much for being on the show. We're going to run out of time. So let me just say to everybody, have a great week. Um, remember, learn to listen. When you open your heart, open your ears, open your mind, and just start listening, everything changes. I hope everybody has a great week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Stop Telling and Start Listening. We hope you've picked up on some useful ideas to help you enhance your conversational skills. Until we listen again, have a beautiful week.